Hello, and welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence, and we've got two incredible guests for you today. First up, we are welcoming back Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. She's an award winning author and scholar of extremism and radicalism. Thank you for joining us, Doctor. Thanks for having me back. It's good to see you again. It's lovely to see you too. And unfortunately, I'm sure you have been busy as the extremism never stops. <laughs> and I know also you're the recent author, author of the recent book, Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. And so, in terms of where you've seen your book take off, given the recent events, have you been able to see kind of any overlap? Yes, I mean, it has obviously become even more, you know, it's become even more hitting hitting the spot of where we are right now, I think post January 6th. I think there are a few things that are a little bit different in my work. I primarily focus on youth historically, and there are some strange things that we've seen, you know, on January 6th with older adults engaging, with more women engaging. And so it's really hard to know if that's an outlier or if we'll continue to see those patterns, although I have some thoughts on it. So, you know, the the early work that I've done over the last um, couple of decades, reading leading up to the work on youth radicalization, has taught me a lot. But there's so much uh, happening that's different now than before. Um, so it's it's uh, it's an ever evolving space. Yes, uh, definitely ever evolving. And let's jump into one of those issues. We know that the extremism experts, um, such as yourself, are warning about a troubling shift in the right wing QAnon movement that really blends this anti-Chinese and anti-Jewish tropes. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, one of the things we see with far right ideologies or beliefs is that they they constantly evolve, and that's true of their conspiracy theories too. There's some common threads that are always there, so there's always orchestration. It's always a belief that somebody is you know using puppet strings to manipulate people for bad reasons, for nefarious bad reasons that that are dangerous and pose a threat. But what we're seeing is that you know certain so it's it's morphing into more anti-Semitic, more anti-Asian tropes, and and also some just more general anti-government. A lot of tyranny, a lot of anti-government rhetoric that intersects with things like both anti-shelter-in-place orders, but also anti-vax belief system. So it's picking up on whatever the current moment is, you know, gun control laws, anti-government shelter-in-place orders, anti-vax orders are all getting incorporated into that rhetoric. And that rhetoric has been very dangerous as we saw. We've had what two recent mass shootings. We had the Atlanta and the attack on the Asian women. And then also just recently in Colorado. And it's a very scary time. And I also know that QAnon seems to be rebranding this idea of this new world order. And I was wondering what makes this really different than the previous QAnon theories? Well, QAnon is it's like an umbrella theory. So there's there's a whole lot of strange things that go on within QAnon sets of beliefs. At its 
core, there is an anti-Semitic trope of this, this idea that there's again an orchestrated cabal of elites um, or of Jewish people who are who are uh, kidnapping children and um, trafficking and torturing them. And, and that it seems hard to believe that people believe this this conspiracy theory, but they do. But there are also a whole range of other things going on in QAnon, of course. And so you, what you see is that it just evolves. And so their focus on Trump has shifted now to a much bigger focus on on sort of global elites in general and anti-government rhetoric. And we also have seen in the past when they take on these kind of theories and tropes and in instances where they've actually played out and people have been harmed. Is there any fears really mounting about how they may operate or strike next? Definitely have some concerns. I mean, not only have we seen, you know, kidnappings and and uh, other plots and violence coming out of the QAnon movement. It's obviously highly mobilizing. A lot of people showed up on January sixth um, as QAnon believers, and we're in a moment where we've had record-breaking gun sales all year and even some ammunition shortages. So we're in a, a moment where it's certainly easy for people to get their hands on weapons, and then if they are just out of touch with reality and really believing in mass misinformation, disinformation, and conspiracies that tell them there's a threat and that they need to act heroically to thwart it. That's that's not a very good place to be. So I am concerned as we move forward, we have to find better ways to intervene and prevent people from, um, from being susceptible to that kind of disinformation and conspiracy. Absolutely, because what I believe there are about 40 million guns sold in 2020 alone. And it's very disconcerting thinking that there are a lot of people out there who subscribe to these theories that may be armed. And you had mentioned in terms of the government looking, or possibly if it's the government, looking for ways to change people's mindsets, to bring them back to reality. What do you think needs to happen to achieve that end? Well, I think you know after 9/11, we um, about a year later, a little over a year later, we got an entire new agency, the Department of Homeland Security, that's focused on risk and national security. And I would like to see that same scale of response dedicated to building resilience and prevention. And I think it doesn't have to be an agency, but we definitely need that level of engagement to work on prevention. Yes, that would be very nice, especially when you have media outlets out there reinforcing the propaganda and feeding the machine. Some kind of check definitely needs to be in order. And now that we do have this new administration in place led by Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, it seems like there might be some incentive to change. But is there a chance that this, even this change, this current environment is just a fertile ground really for this movement to continue to grow? Well, one of the problems we have is that typically the federal government, and it is what we're seeing right now, is will react with a very law enforcement security focused response to to kind of extremism. And of course, there has to be accountability, but increasing surveillance tools and you know talking about scanning social media pages or finding better ways to infiltrate groups and can kind of further feed that narrative if people feel like, oh, it's the deep state that the government is overreaching, overstepping, they're surveilling us. And so on the one hand, it can kind of feed that narrative, but also we have to be careful about what kind of tools we build under an administration at this current moment, because who knows what administration comes next and could use those same tools against other groups that they deem to be threats. And so I think we really have to 
very carefully consider and make sure that civil rights and privacy advocates are a part of these conversations before we allow the federal government to develop you know, deep tools for surveillance. Yes, absolutely. It sounds like unless we have these necessary parties involved that there's a possibility that all it will do is make people more suspect and continue to feed into these false ideations that they happen to have. And something that really kind of shocks me a bit as someone here in Los Angeles, I'm very much a part of the SoCal vibe. And I learned recently that many Southern Californians have really latched into this new world order rhetoric, which seems somewhat shocking as you know, Californians have this kind of, I guess, these stereotypes or thoughts about how we operate. But I was wondering, what is it necessarily about Southern Californians that are making them, you know? maybe kind of open to this mindset. Yeah, there's a really strange paradox here in that, you know, one of the new intersections we're seeing is that the wellness movement and even sort of some yoga communities have um, have helped become some channels to some of the conspiracy theories like QAnon. Not everyone, of course, who's in the wellness or yoga communities, but certain pockets of that, because those are communities that already might have a distrust of some traditional medicine. Let's say they intersect with some of the anti-vax movements, and then those become overlapping circles. And in the online ecosystem, it's just so messy. It's very easy to add a hashtag, and then that creates a channel for disinformation and conspiracy to get carried into those groups. So we are seeing some of those more women come in that way, and also some of these wellness pockets in the country be a little bit more susceptible than is typically the case with conspiracy theories. Yikes, it's a very scary thing, especially right now when we are trying to get people vaccinated and to reopen to have safe communities. But I definitely want to thank you for joining us, Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. By chance, can you tell people where they can find you and your book, Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right? Of course, well, I urge people to reach out to their local bookstores to order it. You can also get the book on the Princeton University Press website. And I run a research lab at American University. It's www.american.edu backslash peril, P-E-R-I-L. And we have lots of tools for parents and teachers and others who might wanna recognize signs of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, and be better equipped to combat it in their own communities. So I encourage people to go download those free resources. Fantastic, thanks for joining us, doctor. Thanks for having me, Adrian, good to see you. Nice seeing you too. It is TYT's The Conversation, and now we are joined by David Johns. He's the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. That's a civil rights organization dedicated to the empowerment of black LGBTQ voices. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adrian. All right, so a lot of things have been going on, David, especially in the LGBTQ space. You know, it's been a landmark week. As we saw former Pennsylvania Health Secretary Rachel Levine to be the nation's Assistant Secretary of Health. And she's also happens to be the first openly transgender federal official to receive Senate confirmation. What does that mean to the community? It means a lot for our country, acknowledging Secretary Levine's history of demonstrating both compassion and competence and responding to pressing and emergent healthcare needs. Uh, of the constituents of Pennsylvania previously and now uh, the country. 
um, her work on responding to the opioid crisis, as well as prioritizing the, the needs of adolescents and their health and well-being, is critically important, especially for NBJC when we think about the fact that the suicide rate for Black children and youth has doubled in the last two decades, while it's decreased for for every other community of children and youth. And so, it's a significant win for our country. And then beyond that, when we think about the need for representation. Uh, the fact that there are still so many um, LGBTQIA plus uh, young people, people who may not identify with those identities, but might be assumed to be members of the community um, who don't see themselves reflected in the world. Um, seeing Secretary Levine confirmed uh, uh, in this way uh, by this administration um, is a significant feat for so many uh, children, youth, and young adults, as well as adults as well. Yes, because we know right now, unfortunately, it seems like there are a number of attacks on the trans community. And so to have this representation here is so big. And I know that the final vote for Health Secretary Levine was 52 to 48 with Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine joining in with all the Democrats. What do you think that says? Um, so this is not inconsistent for either of those members. Uh, I had the pleasure of serving in the US Senate um, as a senior uh, policy advisor to the Health Committee first under the leadership of Senator Kennedy uh, and then under the leadership of Senator Harkin. Um, and both of those members were um, often voting in response to the needs of the country um, and in particular their constituents um, and not necessarily with the Republican caucus. Um, and my hope given the very slim a majority that exists at present in the United States Senate that there will be more leaders, regardless of the caucus that they are members of, who will again prioritize the needs of constituents and country over the needs of political party at this point. Absolutely, that would be nice if you actually had leaders who are doing what's in the best interest of the nation, as opposed that? to you know playing on party lines. Uh, so yes, um, I agree. That is very dope. And also with Levine, you know, she's an accomplished physician. She went to Harvard, Tulane. Uh, she just happens to also be transgender. And so I was wondering, how do you think that Levine's knowledge and experience, uh, and also you know where she comes from and who she is, is going to contribute to the impact of her role? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, uh, any of us who have the unique understanding of the challenges that come with and the unique gifts associated with intersectional identities. You as a black woman, me as a black same gender loving man, those of us who are not native to this country, for whom English is not our first language, who have a disability. All understand that we have the obligation to bring additional skills to whatever roles we might occupy professionally. And so everyone should be clear that in addition to being a really thoughtful, um, a medical health practitioner, um, Dr. Levine has additional life experience that in this particular moment is incredibly important uh, to be brought to bear on important conversations. Uh, as you mentioned, it should be lost on no one that in the last year, there have been almost 200 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation introduced at state legislative houses across this country. The vast majority of them targeting trans individuals, in particular trans girls, trans athletes. Um, we are concerned as an organization about the disproportionate impact that that will have upon black women and girls. Um, I think often about Serena Williams um, and the many challenges she has faced in 
continuing to remind the world that she is one of the greatest athletes that has ever existed here too for, regardless of whatever socially constructed community we might want to remember that she's a member of. And at this point in time, when so many adults are fixated upon young people's genitalia, rather than responding to ensure that their mental health and well-being is prioritized, that they develop cognitively, socially, and emotionally. I am heartened by knowing that Dr. Levine is in a place where she can respond with, again, competence and compassion. Yes, competence, compassion, they sound like things we have not heard of in an administration in a while. So that is a blessing to have those things there. And also, you're absolutely correct in terms of the massage noir that goes on in regulating our black female bodies and this assumption, this thought that we are not, it's almost a lack of humanity. And it's definitely very much undermining of dignity. And so to have to continue to fight in that regard is it's very disheartening. But I am heartened to know that we have Dr. Levine there. And so kind of to switch gears with something that dropped last week, so there was a decision that came out of the Sixth Circuit. That's where three Republican appointed judges ruled that a college violated a professor's free speech rights because they punished the professor because he was refusing to use a trans student's pronoun. And you know, many may have thought the the attacks on the LGBTQIA plus community and the oppression would end once the Trump administration ended, but that is clearly not the truth. And as we saw with this ruling, where we had two Trump judges and a George W. Bush appointed judge, you know, the problem still seems to be lingering. So I was wondering what concerns you most about the legacy that's really left behind by the Trump administration. What concerns me most is that the previous administration who shall not be named was just the tip of the iceberg. And any of us who are concerned about democracy and or more specifically who care about fairness, that all of us have the ability to be treated equally, should be concerned that there is still a whole lot of more work to be done. And so there are three things that come to mind. NBJC remains committed to working with organizations, institutions of higher education, as well as sector leaders to increase their competence and their compassion so that they can understand the importance of recognizing pronouns in the same way that we respectfully recognize each other by our names. That's one. The second thing is continuing to ensure that we improve policies. Right now, we are working to pass the Equality Act so that there are fair and consistent non-discrimination protections that exist across this country. And there's a whole lot of work to be done, including in organizations and institutions, such that they have policies that acknowledge the ways that everyone shows up, that provides people with the respect that they deserve, and that allows people to contribute to whatever the bottom line is in that space or that organization. And then the third thing is that we have an obligation to continue to leverage all of the executive authority that comes with the Biden-Harris administration to step in in the moments in which people's goodwill and good intentions fall short. And there are opportunities to help support people in identifying more meaningful behaviors. Yes, that is quite the agenda. And I do hope that it is something that you guys are able to fulfill and execute because we need change and we need it preferably now. But as far as it concerns in terms of maybe looking ahead in the future, you named off those three things. But I guess, 
What else do you think is not necessarily getting the level of attention that it deserves that you see is really burgeoning and can be impactful and problematic? Yeah, I think two things. One is we have to continue to watch the bench. I don't know if you can see, probably not because it's blurred out, but behind me, there's a box from the She Will Rise campaign, fueled in part by April Rain. And this is to celebrate the importance of ensuring that at some point soon there's a black woman appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. As you mentioned, this circuit decision was made possible by people who have a particular view of the court system and the Declaration of Independence. There are a lot of people who I believe hide behind what they call federalism, while we should just simply name it as white supremacy. And so playing the long game in the way that the Republican Party has and ensuring that there are members of the judicial body who understand the importance of the plurality of diversity that exists right now in our country is incredibly important. The second thing is that we need to have more meaningful conversations about the importance of respecting one another, whether that be by acknowledging one's pronouns. And if that's too complicated for you, for whatever reason, that's a whole nother conversation than respecting somebody's given name. We simply do not interrogate the ways in which we police one another and maintain systems of oppression, including by binaries that exist based on pronouns. For anybody who's not understanding what it is that I'm attempting to say right now, just consider the fact that there are there's one way to refer to a grown boy, he's a man. There are three ways to refer to a grown girl. She is a Miss M-I-S-S, a Mrs. M-S, or she is a M-R-S Mrs. And each of those designations come with a set of legal, political, and social implications, all associated with one's relationship to a man. That's by design. And the more we can talk about these social constructs, the more we can make people uncomfortable with things that they otherwise assume to be natural and traditional because they just aren't. So this is a long way of saying there's a whole lot of work to do and I hope that all of us are committing to doing more. Thank you so much for joining us, David Johns, Executive Director, National Black Justice Coalition. Thank you so much.